So today we continue our uh, five-week series on meals in Luke's Gospel and how they are a metaphor for the church. So today we're going to listen to uh, Luke chapter 14, verses 1 and 7 through 14. And in your uh, bulletin it says what page? I think it said 72 in the New Testament portion. Thank you. So on page 72 if you want to follow along in the New Testament portion of your Bible. Hear the word of the Lord. On one occasion when Jesus was going to the house of a leader of the Pharisees to eat a meal on the Sabbath, they were watching him closely. When he noticed how the guests chose the places of honor, he told them a parable. When you are invited by someone to a wedding banquet, do not sit down at the place of honor in case someone more distinguished than you has been invited by your host. And the host who invited both of you may come up and say to you, give this person your place, and then, in disgrace, you would start to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down at the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. He said also to the one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers and sisters or your relatives, or rich neighbors, in case they may invite you in return and you would be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. This is the word of God given for the people of God. Amen. I invite you to pray with me. God, settle our busy minds and open our hearts so that wherever it is that we may sit when we hear these words of yours, they may speak to us what we need to hear in that time and in this place. As always, I pray that my words would be your words. Amen. So Christmas was the holiday when we were little kids, but after each of us left home as adults, Thanksgiving became the favored Weir holiday. And for more than 25 years, we all traveled to South Bend to celebrate with my folks at the big house. Over the years, we added grandchildren to the mix, and soon there was not enough room for everyone at the dining room table. And that led, of course, to the proverbial kids' table. Now, my parents' house had a tiny, teeny kitchen, so the kids' table was actually in the family room, and there was a pass-through between the dining room and the family room, so it was kind of like sitting at parallel tables. But eventually, too many grandchildren, and even some great-grandchildren, were added to the mix, and one year we found we had outgrown even the two-table setup that had worked so well for so long. So that Thanksgiving, my mother set up card tables all over the first floor. It looked like a restaurant. There were tables in the living room, the den, the family room, and of course, the dining room. But how to decide who would sit where? 
Now, the oldest grandchildren, of course, were vying for their chance to finally make it to the big table in the dining room. The youngest babes couldn't sit alone. What should we do? So my mother and I devised what we thought was the perfect solution. We were one big happy family, right? So who sat where shouldn't matter at all. We numbered each place at each table and then put corresponding numbers in a basket and everyone would draw a number to determine where they would sit and it would be great fun to see where everyone ended up. And my mother and I were quite proud of ourselves until my father found out. And let's just say he wasn't too pleased with this situation. You could actually say he had a little hissy fit. No one was going to tell him where to sit on Thanksgiving in his own home. No, sir. He would sit at the head of the table in the dining room just where he always sat. He would not be a part of any such foolish plan to mix everything up. Seniority and rank had their privileges, thank you very much. My mother and I silently smiled at each other across the room and said, of course, you sit where you want and we'll just use the number system for everybody else. So dad sat in his usual place and he watched the rest of us pick our numbers and end up all over the place. A great grandchild ended up at the coveted dining room table. Families were mixed up young and old and we all had a great day. Everyone talked on and on about what fun it was to scatter us all around the first floor. And I'm pretty sure that my dad regretted his boisterous objections when he saw the fun that the rest of us had. I'm pretty sure he felt a little petty and perhaps a bit immature because we really are, were, and are one big happy family and so it really did not matter where we all sat as long as we were together. Now, I think that's part of Jesus' message for us in today's gospel story. Where we sit doesn't matter. But why doesn't it matter? Well, let's take a little closer look at this particular meal story. In the initial section, Jesus speaks to the guests. He opens his little speech by calling it a parable, but it doesn't seem to have the expected attributes of a parable. He seems actually to be giving directions or instructions that might even feel like he's playing Miss Manners. As a guest at a wedding, don't assume a position of greatness until your host assigns it to you. In other words, don't sit at the right hand of your host unless invited to do so. Well, that makes common sense even in today's world, right? Most of us, when invited to a wedding, expect to have a little card waiting for us that tells us where to sit. And we wouldn't dream of plunking ourselves down at the head table or even any other table than the one that we had been assigned. But this section addressed to the guests has a bit of curiosity to it as well. Because it seems like Jesus is giving people hints on how to look good to others. If you take the worst seat, like the kids' table in the family room, and the host has a fit and invites you to come sit in the dining room, well, then you look pretty good to everybody else sitting there, right? Everybody gets to witness you being uplifted by the host. In essence, the host says, oh my gosh, look how important this person is, and they were sitting at the kids' table? That will never do. They must move to the dining room. In essence, the host is saying, this is how it needs to be. This person's status should put them in the dining room. Jesus then turns his attention to the host of this party that he's at, and he says to the host, don't invite the A-list when you have a party. 
No, if you invite your family or friends or celebrities, then they will most likely invite you back in return, and you will end up being rewarded by that invitation. Well, this still seems to be the way social invitations work, right? If I invite Joe to my wedding, well, expectations are that I'll be invited to Joe's wedding. So I'm not sure that this is feeling like a parable yet. But then here it comes. Because instead of inviting those folks, Jesus says, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. So in speaking to the guests, Jesus seems to be giving advice on how to be exalted or lifted up by your host in front of all the other guests. But in speaking to the host, he takes a 180-degree turn. Don't invite people who can exalt you by returning social favors. So it leaves me confused. Which is it? Look for ways to look good in front of your peers or don't? Well, the key may be in verse 11. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. To the guests, he says, humble yourself by sitting at the kids' table. To the host, he says, humble yourself by inviting those who have no means to repay you. But why? Why is it important to humble ourselves? For me, it's easier to turn that question around. Why is it important not to exalt ourselves, not to look for exaltation? What he's saying is don't look for admiration, affirmation, and praise from others. Don't look for a host to praise you and raise you up above other guests. Don't look for guests who will make you look good by their return invitations. Now, status and position in society meant everything in Jesus' day. It was a transactional system where everyone knew their place and where you were constantly reminded to stay in that place. So here we have Jesus hitting once again upon one of Luke's favorite themes, the countercultural message that turns expectations and the ways of the world upside down. That message of inclusion and inversion that we hear over and over in Luke. The last shall be first. The rich will go away hungry. The humble are exalted. It's the upside-down kingdom, if you will. Jesus is saying that those things we value, and in this parable, it's status and standing. In other parables, it's wealth or power or authority. But the message is always the same. Those things that we value are really of no value in the kingdom. Jesus is telling all those at that banquet who are listening, and us included, that there is no pecking order in the kingdom. None. Who we are in society, what we do for a living, what our IQ is, what income we bring in, what college we went to, how fit and beautiful we might be, all of the ways that we compare ourselves to each other, none of that means beings in the kingdom. It is meaningless to God. The trouble is, we can't seem to get away from all this comparison stuff, right? In Jesus' day, it was clear-cut status and standing in the society based upon what you were born into. And while we might like to pride ourselves on our so-called democratic society, 
we actually are no less immune from status structures than the ancients were. Have you ever accidentally gotten in the first class line at the airport gate while you hold an economy ticket? Believe me, you will be immediately reminded of your place and status. We live in a world where comparison is the sport of the day. Do we have as much as the others? Are our children attending the right schools? Is our car the latest off the assembly line decked out with every bell and whistle? Have we been noticed by the boss lately? Are we part of the all-important in crowd? And especially, how many likes do my social media posts have? We are constantly bombarded with messages of what society tells us is meaningful. Youth, beauty, wealth, achievement, popularity, winning. The list goes on and on and on. But whose values are those? And who does the valuing? Now, in essence, we all participate in this game of comparison and valuation based on the standards of the world. Whether we are the guest or the host, we seem to always be jockeying for the best seat at the dining room table. And why do we do this? What is this comparison business all about? Well, I think it's about affirmation. I think it's about assuring ourselves that we really are good enough. And I think the reason that we do this is because we just cannot conceive one essential truth at the core of our being. We don't know or believe that our value doesn't lie in any of that, that our value doesn't come from the car we drive or the town we live in or the salary we earn or the people we keep company in. It doesn't even come from the good works we do. No, our value comes simply by being children of God. Our worth is not based on the acceptance of our peers, but on God's value and love for us. As Christians, we should see our value as a gift, not as an achievement. Our value is not rooted in anything that we do, have, or accomplish. Our value is rooted in God's abiding love for each and every one of us. If we really believed this, if we could see ourselves as God sees us, what freedom it would bring to us and what changes it would make in the world. We would be free from worrying about, are we good enough? Free from worrying about what others think of us. Free from the fear about our place in society. Free from letting others value and define us. Free to stand up to the culture and say, no, enough. We will not listen to the materialism around us, turning our lives over to consumption and possessions. We won't buy the lie that sports of every kind, music lessons and tutoring are the most important and only ways for our kids to grow into healthy and happy adults. We won't listen to those internal fears that rise within us that we will never have enough money to retire. Instead, we would live in the freedom that God intends for all of us. The trouble is, at least for me, this is really hard to do. Because there's a cost to our lives in ignoring the conventions of the world and holding fast to God's ways. Because we're meant to live in community, we're meant to live with others. 
Just try being that cool kid in the high school cafeteria that invites the nerds to sit at the cool table with you. What happens to you? Well, more often than not, you also get tossed into the doesn't measure up pile. You are demoted and told where your new pecking order is, and it's nowhere close to where it used to be. It takes guts and grit and faith to live counterculturally, no matter what age we are. It takes courage and trust to live this parable, to invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind to the party. This is one reason that church community is so important, because it makes it easier to live a countercultural life when you are doing it together with others who hold the same values and understandings of what is important in life. We have each other as support when we want to live in ways that seem to cast us out from the crowd because this is our crowd. This is the group that understands and strives to live the same values. This is why bringing our children to church and Sunday school is so important. It provides them with a tribe of friends who will stand with them when they want to buck convention and choose Jesus' countercultural ways. So we ask ourselves this summer, what does this meal teach us about being church? Our questions today swirl around invitation. Who are the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind in our society? Whose lives are a poverty of fellowship, companionship, or assistance in times of need? Who are those that are crippled by systems that privilege one race over another? Who are those that limp due to lack of education or income? Who are those that our society is blind to that we cannot see as equally deserving a seat at the table? Who are those who lack honor and praise in our society that claims to see all as equal? And then, how do we invite all of these to the party? Now, God is ultimately the only one who can honor or exalt us. God is the only one whose valuation of us matters. And if we think of it that way, why would we want to be exalted by a host or by guests when the only one that matters has already exalted us, has already prepared a seat for us at the table? And once we know that in our core, what happens? Well, we are filled, filled completely, and we no longer need to look for assurance or valuation from anyone or anything else. We are freed from these games of comparison and competition, we no longer need the honor and accolades of others. But we also are able to see that every other person exists in this same exaltation. Every other person is also loved and valued and praised and adored by this God. We no longer feel the need ourselves to value others or devalue them to make ourselves feel better. We no longer need to judge others critiquing and criticizing. And when that happens, we are able to share God's amazing love in ways that we did not dream possible. We are free to see that Jesus' in crowd is probably much different than our in crowd. 
And then we are free to include the blind and the lame, the poor and the crippled as easily as we include the rich and the family and the friends. And we are free to see that there are plenty of seats at God's table, each with the same value. There's no kid's table in the family room, just one big table for all, with chairs enough for all, with exaltation for all from God. Unlike my father, worried about where he would sit, when we know, really know, that we are infinitely loved by God, by the creator of all things, then it really does not matter where we sit. There is a seat for everyone at God's table, and every chair is a throne. Amen. Join me in prayer. Gracious God, in whose love we live and move, we pray for a world crying out to feel loved, wanted, cherished, and unique. Remind us to see ourselves as you see us and to see others as a reflection of you. We pray for a world torn apart by conflict and war, a world that lives uneasily in a climate of fear with no clear vision for future days. Remind us, as the psalmist did this morning, that living your ways reduces our fears and gives meaning and purpose to our lives. 
We pray for a world that thinks less of others than of self. A world where division between nations, races, religion, and neighbor, as well as family, leads to distrust. Remind us to seek out the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and remind us that at times we too are the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. We pray for a world that is short on happiness, too busy to enjoy this world you have created for us, too preoccupied with living to appreciate life. Remind us to slow down, that there is already a seat at the table for each of us, a throne of hope and joy and peace. We pray especially this morning for our Nuaz of Paz family and all those affected by the raging fires in Cuba. While the fires have been contained, the devastation from them will last a long time. May we continue to be your hands and feet for them in their time of great need. May they especially feel our prayers of love and support surrounding them in these difficult circumstances. We dedicate our offerings to you this morning, recognizing with deep thanks that all we have is a gift from you. We ask you to use our gifts in ways that help fulfill your dreams and provide assistance to those in need. And as always, we lift all these prayers in the name of the Christ, and all God's people said, Amen.